Podcast One Production. Welcome to the Great COVID Reset. I'm Adam Shand. This is part two of our second series. Australia's first COVID-19 infection was on January 25, when a Victorian man brought the virus home from Wuhan, China, ground zero for the pandemic. We're still trying to understand what COVID means for us and this island nation, and how to think clearly in an atmosphere of contradictions and competing facts. Now, before the advent of a vaccine, our economic future seems as unclear as ever. In this episode, I'll look at some ideas that may seem radical given our current mindset. But that's the point. Perhaps we can't properly evaluate anything new without questioning the circumstances that led us to this place. And whether our way of thinking serves us as well as we believe. The likely scenario for Australia is we face a rolling series of infections until a vaccine is delivered in mid-2021. And then COVID-19 will be a seasonal illness with lower mortality. And we try to run our lives as best we can until another pandemic comes along. Once again, we lock down, mask up and wait for the scientists to save us. Our options are few because humans are notoriously resistant to change and incapable of global action unless governments control and decree it. But is that really so? Sociologists argue any COVID reset must come with a definitive change of mindset. We must examine the so-called meta-narrative that drives our self-image as a people. The meta-narrative is the story about the story. The model we use to explain what we learn and experience through a lifetime. These models may include religion, capitalism, nationalism, and inform us what is possible and what is not. These social codes tend to be rigid, and not surprisingly, few would believe the middle of a pandemic is a great moment to change our society. Dr Keith Souter, the creator of Global Truths on Podcast One Australia, disagrees. He says... Unless we challenge aspects of the meta-narrative, Australia will miss an historic opportunity. You know, we have a meta-narrative in this country. That's jargon for meaning you know, sort of the, a fish doesn't know that it swims in water. So what's the water in which you're swimming in, in what you don't know about? Well, quite simply, this idea is that the poor have too much money and the rich have too little, which is why you get a discussion about cutting back on welfare payments while we're so mean-spirited in giving out Uh, unemployment checks, and at the same time, we're in favour of tax cuts for the rich. The rich aren't going to spend that money. We should be giving it the money to poor people. Remember the Reserve Bank in 2008, go hard, go early, go household, put the money into people's pockets. You give the money to poor people, they'll pay for their dental work, they'll pay for new eyeglasses, they'll start buying better quality food, etc. There's ample evidence supporting Keith Suda's argument, and this pandemic is providing more. Many economic indicators have been surprisingly resilient, yet the federal government has already begun to wind back its income support measures, which will be phased out by March 2021 if the Treasurer has his way. More people will inevitably slip into poverty in the second half of 2021 as the spending power of the poor declines. And this could impact how we deal with pandemics of the future. 
As of July 31, the area with the highest number of active coronavirus cases is postcode 3029, which includes Hoppers Crossing, Tarnit and Truganina in Melbourne's western suburbs. It has 346 active cases. Australia's second wave was concentrated in Melbourne's north and west, areas of low income with high immigrant populations and large families. A significant proportion of those infected in the second wave did not speak English as a first language. As the pandemic unfolds, Broadmeadows Mosque and Youth Multicultural Centre, with more than 2,500 congregation members, is producing videos in multiple languages featuring community members who have contracted the virus to convince others it is real. We have 7,125 cases. That's 403 new cases since we last reported to you. In mid-July, the pandemic was spreading quickly in Melbourne's hotspots, exposing the failings of the state's contact tracing system. The labour force in these areas was particularly vulnerable. It's highly casualised, with people typically working for several employers simultaneously, especially in the aged care industry. With no sick leave as part-time employees, these workers were reluctant to be tested and lose pay as they isolated to wait for results. It wasn't until July 23rd, six months into the pandemic, that this obvious weakness was addressed by the state government. It's a one-off $300 support payment for people who need to take time off work to get tested for coronavirus and wait for the result. People who will lose all income in that time will be able to claim the payment after being tested as long as they meet the government's eligibility requirements. The lessons from the second wave are reasonably clear-cut, if anything is such, in 2020. We must lift more people out of poverty, ensure they have secure employment with sick leave, and we must also lift educational standards to avoid mixed messages, especially in migrant communities. We're not hearing this from the political class, which has been fixated on blame rather than addressing the root of the problem. I haven't heard anybody in government talking like that, Keith. No, no, it's because I'm not in government (laughs) and I just wouldn't last very long if I were. We're back to the meta-narrative. Is that really our greatest challenge here is that that our politics do not meet the exigencies that we face right now? Absolutely, yeah. It's a failure of the political class and we see that in the United States as well, not just with President Trump but also with the Democrats. There's one recurring theme in the discussion of Australia's post-COVID future. The next generations will inherit a less lucky country, burdened with debt, low growth and limited personal opportunities. But how true is that? Australia's national debt is headed for a record $1 trillion in 2024. This financial year, the budget deficit is forecast to surpass $213 billion. It does sound terrifying, but you need to break it down a bit, according to the ANZ Bank's senior economist, Sherelle Murphy. We can service that debt pretty easily. What's our GDP now? So two trillion, and the cost of carrying that debt is less than 1% of GDP. So that is lower than it was a couple of years ago. So why are we worrying about all this debt then, Sherelle? Well, I'm not. (laughs) The interest cost of that debt is low because interest rates are low and the Reserve Bank is absolutely going to have that in its mind as it sets monetary policy going forward, as well as, of course, the private sector's ability to carry debt and interest rate rises. So it's all intertwined. How long do you think rates will stay this way, though? Well, I mean, we know from the RBA governor that he has no intention of moving things up within the next three years, at least, 
Now, that doesn't sound like a long term, obviously, in the space of a generation, but in terms of an indicator for, for monetary policy, we have never seen anything like that before. There is a way to deal with this debt burden which would have seen the stuff of third world dictators a year ago. You simply print money to cover the national debt and extinguish it at the stroke of a pen. It's called modern monetary theory. Dr Keith Souter. If you're like the Australian government, you've got control over your own currency, you can print as much money as you need, and Australia's got immense assets. You know, we've got natural resources, human resources, a talented workforce, etc., and no end to it. So, yes, you're right, you know, we will be paying off this money for a while, but it's not really going to be that much of a millstone around the necks of our children or grandchildren. And don't forget, it's the highest rate of debt since World War II. What happened to all the debt after World War II? It was gone in 10 years. We rebuilt the world, including rebuilding Australia. We went ahead with massive, big-picture projects like the uh, uh, Snowy River Hydroelectric Scheme. And so after 10 years of economic activity, the Australian economy had picked up and that national debt had gone and we were no longer talking about a problem with the national debt. So I'm not worried about national debt because I know that we can eventually trade our way out of it. We're not placing a burden on our children or grandchildren. Remember, an Australian government can always print extra dollars. Don't you try to print extra dollars. That's a criminal offence. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, that's always held up as the, an example of economic profligacy to just to print money. But some economists think this is the way out. Do you subscribe to the modern monetary theory approach? Yes, I do. The basic idea is that governments can, at this time, with a reduced demand, print extra money. Money is very cheap at the moment. In other words, you, if you're an Australian government, you can borrow it at a very low rate of interest. And so it will not harm the economy. The problem comes with inflation, which is when you get a sudden influx of money and you don't get a similarly dramatic increase on areas in which to spend that money. But if, in fact, you're in a position to start producing the goods which people will want to buy, well, then, in fact, um, you will have economic progress. So don't worry about that. How would that look in Australia if Josh Frydenberg just said, forget the debt, we're going to print money? How would that look? What would have to happen in our economy to absorb that? Well, what would be necessary is that the money would need to go onto good projects, not just be squandered. You know, I think in big terms, the economics is fine. It's the political class that's the failure. We're being let down by the uh, second-rate people who go into politics nowadays, very different from, say, Chifley or Menzies at the end of World War II and then into the early 1950s. These oversaw nation-building programs. How often do you hear this term, nation-building? Politicians don't do that now. We underwent an economic transformation in our economic philosophy in the early 1980s, and that's what dominates our thinking. Producers will not produce because they're worried that consumers won't buy. So you've got to give people the money with which they will go out and buy things. Dr Keith Souter wouldn't stop at cancelling debt as he resets our society to build resilience in our systems. Everything in his model would be about helping the poor to lift the economy rather than waiting for wealth to trickle down to the working class. I would also like to see a universal basic income. In other words, get rid of all the welfare payments. When you turn 18, 
you'll get a sum of money. You can use that sum of money to put towards a university course or you can go and spend your time, I don't know, on the beach or whatever. And that sum of money will be paid into your bank account fortnightly until you die. So we will cover all the welfare payments, all the old age pensions payments, they'll all go. We will have the standard universal basic income, which keeps the money circulating in the economy. Free tertiary education is another key plank of the Suter Manifesto. Of course, this is very unlikely to happen, even though we know that graduates keep spending through hard times. The appetite for reform seems limited as the existential threats to our economy continue. Margie Hartley is one of Australia's most accomplished executive coaches. She has a podcast series called Fast Track on Podcast One Australia. In her recent discussions with top company CEOs, she sees little appetite for risk and change right now. Overall, I'd have to say I have moments of real excitement and I was very thrilled to see what happened in America. I thought it was a pivotal point in history. And I've got this hope that there's potential for change here in Australia and the potential for grabbing hold of that opportunity. And then I just see people letting it slip through their fingers. And now when I say people, that might be the COVID commission, it might be the government, federal government, state governments, might be people in communities, it might be business leaders. But I think there's a fragment of opportunity for us to grab hold of and we're just not doing it. There's this strong identity that we need for Australia and it's playing out right now with China. You only need to look at New Zealand, Adam. It's got an identity. It actually treasures its environment. It treasures its people. It treasures its heritage. And it talks about words like empathy. And if you notice that Biden and Harris on their winning stage had the word empathy and flashing up. So all of a sudden this has become a currency to be human again, as opposed to be difficult. But I think we're going to get left behind what feels like we're sitting on the fence. So if we assume there'll be little change in Keith Souter's meta-narrative of Australia, how well placed is the nation in its immediate future? Well, yes, I think the issue really is is a matter of love, L-U-V. So what is going to be the shape of this recession or even depression? So L means you get a sudden reduction in economic activity and that runs along for years to come. Then you've got U, which is that you get the sudden drop, you crawl along the bottom for a short time, perhaps two, three years, and then you go up. And then you've got what is called the V-shaped recession, which is where it suddenly goes down, hits the bottom and bounces straight up. So L-shaped recession is the fear that lurks in the back of our minds, or at least those of us who do economics. So you get the decline in the economy and then it takes years for economic recovery to kick in again, like the 1930s. So we had the Great Depression and then that ran on throughout most of the 1930s. Now, there were signs that we were getting out, say, by the mid-1930s, but basically we got out because of World War II and the increased level of government expenditure. So that's the L shape. That is the horror option. And I find it interesting that we're getting people now talking about depression rather than recession. A recession is two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth, which Australia is, until the corona came along, which Australia has not had for 30-odd years. So a depression, by contrast, is a much longer recession. So it goes on for 
three quarters, an entire year, year and a half, etc. So that's the L shape, and that's the horror option. The U shape, which is where I think we're heading, is that the economy goes down, runs along the bottom for a while, but then it does come up in in about a, a year or so's time. And that's probably where I was when I spoke to you before, that I thought we would recover. Um, I was trying to keep away from the ill. But if you speak to politicians, not only here, but in Great Britain and the United States, they talk about the V-shaped recession. In other words, that things head down and then they bounce back up again. That's why a lot of the government assistance projects are lasting for six months. Is that political wishful thinking really rooted in electoral aspirations (laughs) rather than reality, Keith? Absolutely. Um, Particularly in the United States, no American president has been re-elected in a recession, which is why I think President Trump was so concerned to keep talking up the economy in order to talk down the threat from coronavirus and so misjudged the nature of the crisis, as did Boris Johnson in Great Britain, as did Bolsonaro in Brazil. Australia and New Zealand, to their credit, took urgent action and they were doing so because they were also motivated by this V-shaped recession. They figured if, look, if we take short, sharp action now, we will bounce back from the bottom. I think privately some of those politicians will now be changing their views. They may be moving across to the U-shape, which is where I was and where I continue to be, but in the back of my mind there is now the risk of an L-shaped recession which begins this year and will drag on for many years to come, in which case, therefore, whatever wealth you had in February 2020, February of this year, will be the high point of your wealth. From here on in, it's going to go down and we could be in a very bad way if this drags on, well, like the 1930s, goes on for a decade. Well, Dr Keith, what evidence do you see that we might be going from this U-shape to the L-shape you so worry about? Well, I'm worried because simply that although we're pumping money into the economy, it's basically of a welfare type. So in Australia, we've got JobKeeper, search Allowances, which I support. I think it's great. But what we really need are not just welfare payments, but actually putting money into very big infrastructure projects, a railroad through the east coast of Australia, for example, more research and development generally. Australia has an appalling record on research and development. We put our genius into sport rather than science. And so what worries me is the lack of imagination in the political class. I'm not so much worried about the economics of the national debt. That we can handle. I'm worried about the lack of imagination of the political class whereby we are simply not going to make the most of this opportunity to really reshape the global economy or at least the Australian economy with all sorts of new innovations. That's what that's what worries me. You know, after 2008, the Australian government, to its credit, followed the advice of the Reserve Bank. Go hard, go early, go household. Put the money into ordinary people's pockets. That didn't happen in the United States. And the recession was dragged out much longer than it should have been because the Obama administration rescued the banks but didn't rescue the ordinary Americans. What does this L-shaped recession or depression look like for the individual? What what features would it have for them in terms of personal debt and so forth? Well, in terms of uh, the individual, it means that you're going to be out of work or you'll be doing reduced hours if you're lucky enough to be retained in work. And then if you like, a depression mindset sets in. 
So it's not a, a mental health issue. Well, it is a mental health issue, but it's also an economic issue in the sense that people come to expect that they're not going to get jobs. This is the worry that I've got about young people when they leave school or university this year who are simply not going to be getting jobs. And we see this now in the unemployment statistics. So we have a, a crisis of unemployment and underemployment. So underemployment means that you've got people who are employed but would like to work extra hours. Um, and so we will just see this dragging on and a lot of people will just simply say, there's no hope for me. And that, that's what really worries me. But as you say, conservatism seems to be uh, reigning. Every positive assumption we hear at the moment seems to be predicated when the vaccine comes. What <laughs> if it doesn't come? What are that's we looking a, at? It's a very good question because we still don't have a vaccine for AIDS. You know, individuals have had to change some of their practices, et cetera, but basically, what are we now, 40 years on, we still don't have a, a vaccine for AIDS. So it may well be that if we're going to cope with the coronavirus crisis, we will need to change how we behave until that vaccine comes. Now, um, looking at, at most recent reports, there are 130 research projects underway because this obviously is a pharmaceutical goldmine. And so it's assumed that we will actually get some sort of vaccine. So in that sense, I'm more optimistic, but it may, in the meantime, change how we are to live our lives through social distancing, etc. Well, how do you feel personally about the future right now? Well, I'm, I'm always an optimist. And my view is that you have to make lemonade out of this lemon. So in other words, you have to say, well, how can we change things that we can do a better job in the future? Which is why I talk about more money going into research and development, more infrastructure projects, using the term nation building, building railroads. We should be talking in those terms uh, rather than just worrying about a block of flats in Melbourne. Mm. Okay. Just finally, if you were Scott Morrison, what would be your priorities between now and Christmas? Nation building, getting that language back into the vocabulary. We had it in the time of Menzies and Chifley. Let's get back to that. Let's think of big infrastructure projects. Um, let's think about how we can guarantee people a good education. President Roosevelt revived the American economy, revived American spirits, and talked about that the only fear we have to fear is fear itself. In other words, it's the impact of fear eroding public confidence. I'd like to see a message of real confidence given, not just by upbeat slogans, which we get from politicians at the moment, but by big expenditure programs, the government can afford them, and let's rebuild Australia out of this terrible mess. Let's make lemonade out of this lemon. But what of the summer just ahead in Australia, as the Northern Hemisphere plunges into a winter of discontent? The ANZ's Sherelle Murphy is cautiously optimistic about what she's seeing in her tea leaves. Look, I think we're going to have a pretty good summer, actually, for a number of reasons. One is Melbourne is coming out of lockdown. You know, that is by itself, by definition, going to lift spending uh, and lift economic activity across the Victorian economy, which is a good thing. All of our tourists that normally go overseas, so Australians normally going overseas, they are obviously here in Australia. Now, we have a tourism deficit, which means that there are always more Australians overseas than there are overseas people in Australia, believe it or not. So we actually have the opportunity to have a summer like no other. In other words, there are more people in Australia now than there normally are. So this is a kind of a, a bit of a lost fact, but it's an interesting one. And certainly 
something that will lift our retail spend, it will lift our tourism spend. And I don't know about you, Adam, but if you've tried to get some holiday accommodation, it is impossible over Christmas. It's already pretty much all booked out because, you know, there's just more of us. We all want to go on, on holiday. And the other thing is, of course, people who normally go overseas skiing or whatever in January, they're kind of cashed up and, uh, you know, they have a few dollars to spend. This increased spending in 2021 bodes well for the economy. The forecasts show a level of optimism not yet reflected in media coverage. It will be a long, slow recovery and job seekers face a daunting challenge in the coming months before firms commit investment to their vision of the future. In Episode 3 of The Great COVID Reset, I'll examine employment trends at home and abroad with Seek.com. Seek is the largest recruitment firm in the world, and their data gives us the best available clues to what lies ahead beyond the pandemic for Australia and the world. The Great COVID Reset is written and produced by Adam Shand. Mixing, editing and original score by Matt Nikolich. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nolly Shan. Graphics by Jamie Lee Garner. The Great COVID Reset is a Podcast One Australia production.